Chapter One of Sir Nigel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. Sir Nigel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter One The House of Loring. In the month of July of the year 1348, between the feasts of St. Benedict and of St. Swithin, a strange thing came upon England, for out of the east there drifted a monstrous cloud, purple and piled, heavy with evil, climbing slowly up the hushed heaven. In the shadow of that strange cloud the leaves drooped in the trees, the birds ceased their calling, and the cattle and the sheep gathered, cowering under the hedges. A gloom fell upon all the land, and men stood with their eyes upon the strange cloud, and a heaviness upon their hearts. They crept into the churches, where the trembling people were blessed and shriven by the trembling priests. Outside no bird flew, and there came no rustling from the woods, nor any of the homely sounds of nature. All was still, and nothing moved save only the great cloud, which rolled up and onward with fold on fold from the black horizon. To the west was the light summer sky, to the east this brooding cloud-bank, creeping ever slowly across, until the last thin blue gleam faded away, and the whole vast sweep of the heavens was one great leaden arch. Then the rain began to fall. All day it rained, and all the night, and all the week, and all the month, until folk had forgotten the blue heavens and the gleam of the sunshine. It was not heavy, but it was steady, and cold, and unceasing, so that the people were weary of its hissing and its splashing, with a slow drip from the eaves. Always the same thick, evil cloud flowed from east to west, and with the rain beneath it, None could see for more than a bowshot from their dwellings, for the drifting veil of the rainstorms. Every morning the folk looked upward for a break, but their eyes rested always upon the same endless cloud, until at last they ceased to look up, and their hearts despaired of ever seeing a change. It was raining at Lammastide, and raining at the Feast of the Assumption, and still raining at Michaelmas. The crops and the hay sodden and black, had rotted in the fields, for they were not worth the garnering. The sheep had died, and the calves also, so there was little to kill when Martinmas came, and it was time to salt the meat for the winter. They feared a famine, but it was worse than famine which was in store for them. For the rain had ceased at last, and a sickly autumn sun shone upon a land which was soaked and sodden with water. Wet and rotten leaves reeked and festered under the foul haze which rose from the woods. The fields were spotted with monstrous fungi of a size and colour never matched before, scarlet and mauve and liver and black. It was as though the sick earth had burst forth into foul pustules. Mildew and lichen mottled the walls, and with that filthy crop death sprang also from the water-soaked earth. 
men died, and women and children, the baron of the castle, the franklin of the farm, the monk in the abbey, and the villain in his wattle and daub cottage. All breathed the same polluted reek, and all died the same death of corruption. Of those who were stricken, none recovered, and the illness was ever the same. Gross boils, raving, and the black blotches which gave its name to the disease. All through the winter the dead rotted by the wayside for want of someone to bury them. In many a village no single man was left alive. Then, at last, the spring came, with sunshine and health, and lightness and laughter, the greenest, sweetest, tenderest spring that England had ever known. But only half of England could know it. The other half had passed away with a great purple cloud. Yet it was there, in that stream of death, in that reek of corruption, that the brighter and freer England was born. There in that dark hour the first streak of the new dawn was seen. For in no way save by a great upheaval and change could the nation break away from that iron feudal system which held her limbs. But now it was a new country which came out from that year of death. The barons were dead in swathes. No high turret nor cunning moat could keep out that black commoner who struck them down. Oppressive laws slackened for want of those who could enforce them, and once slackened could never be enforced again. The labourer would be a slave no longer. The bondsman snapped his shackles. There was much to do, and few left to do it. Therefore the few should be freemen, name their own price, and work where and for whom they would. It was the black death which cleared the way for that great rising thirty years later, which left the English peasant the freest of his class in Europe. But there were few so far-sighted that they could see that here, as ever, good was coming out of evil. At the moment misery and ruin were brought into every family. The dead cattle, the ungarnered crops, the untilled lands, every spring of wealth had dried up at the same moment. Those who were rich became poor, but those who were poor already, and especially those who were poor with the burden of gentility upon their shoulders, found themselves in a perilous state. All through England the smaller gentry were ruined, for they had no trade save war, and they drew their living from the work of others. On many a manor-house there came evil times, and on none more than on the manor of Tilford, where for many generations the noble family of the Lorings had held their home. There was a time when the Lorings had held the country from the North Downs to the lakes of Frensham, and when their grim castle-keep rising above the green meadows which bordered the river Way, had been the strongest fortalice betwixt Guildford Castle in the east and Winchester in the west. But there came that baron's war, in which the king used his Saxon subjects as a whip with which to scourge his Norman barons, and Castle Loring, like so many other great strongholds, was swept from the face of the land. From that time the Lorings, with estates sadly curtailed, lived in what had been the dower-house, with enough for splendour. 
and then came their lawsuit with Waverley Abbey, and the Cistercians laid claim to their richest land, with peccary, turbury, and feudal rights over the remainder. It lingered on for years, this great lawsuit, and when it was finished, the men of the church and the men of the law had divided all that was richest of the estate between them. There was still left the old manor-house, from which with each generation there came a soldier to uphold the credit of the name, and to show the five scarlet roses on the silver shield where it had always been shown, in the van. There were twelve bronzes in the little chapel, where Matthew the priest said mass every morning, all of men of the house of Loring. Two lay with their legs crossed, as being from the Crusades. Six others rested their feet upon lions, as having died in war. Four only lay with the effigy of their hounds to show that they had passed in peace. Of this famous but impoverished family, doubly impoverished by law and by pestilence, two members were living in the year of grace 1349, Lady Ermintrude Loring and her grandson Nigel. Lady Ermintrude's husband had fallen before the Scottish spearsman at Stirling, and her son Eustace, Nigel's father, had found a glorious death nine years before this chronicle opens, upon the poop of a Norman galley at the sea-fight of Slui. The lonely old woman, fierce and brooding like the falcon mewed in her chamber, was soft only toward the lad whom she had brought up. All the tenderness and love of her nature, so hidden from others that they could not imagine their existence, were lavished upon him. She could not bear him away from her, and he, with that respect for authority which the age demanded, could not go without her blessing and consent. So it came about that Nigel, with his lion heart, and with the blood of a hundred soldiers thrilling in his veins, still at the age of two-and-twenty, wasted the weary days reclaiming his hawks with leash and lure, or training the allens and spaniels who shared with the family the big earthen-floored hall of the manor-house. Day by day, the aged Lady Ermintrude had seen him wax in strength and in manhood, small of stature, it is true, but with muscles of steel and a soul of fire. From all parts, from the warden of Guildford Castle, from the tilt-yard of Farnham, tales of his prowess were brought back to her, of his daring as a rider, of his debonair courage, of his skill with all weapons. But still she, who had both husband and son torn from her by a bloody death, could not bear that this, the last of the Lorings, the final bud of so famous an old tree, should share the same fate. With a weary heart, but with a smiling face, he bore with his uneventful days, while she would ever put off the evil time until the harvest was better, until the monks of Waverley should give up what they had taken, until his uncle should die and leave money for his outfit, or any other excuse with which she could hold him to her side and indeed there was need for a man at Tilford, for the strife betwixt the abbey and the manor-house had never been appeased, and still on one pretext or another the monks would clip off yet one more slice of their neighbour's land. Over the winding river, across the green meadows, rose the short square tower and the high grey walls of the grim abbey, with its bell tolling by day and night, 
a voice of menace and of dread to the little household. It is in the heart of the great Cistercian monastery that this chronicle of old days must take its start, as we trace the feud betwixt the monks and the house of Loring, with those events to which it gave birth, ending with the coming of Chandos, and the strange spear-running at Tilford Bridge, and the deeds with which Nigel won fame in the wars. Elsewhere, in the chronicle of the White Company, it has been set forth what manner of man was Nigel Loring. Those who love him may read herein those things which went into his making. Let us go back together and gaze upon this green stage of England, the scenery, hill, plain and river, even as now, the actors, in much our very selves, in much also so changed in thought and act, that they might be dwellers in another world to ours. End of chapter 1